Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. Though a few of you are going to be moving away to school, we also are going to be having loads of people move from other places here for school. And in the next few weeks, as you go back to either class or as you go to work, you're going to be interacting with a bunch of people, A, who know, love, trust the Lord and desperately need a local church, or you're going to be meeting much more people who don't know the Lord and desperately need a local church, who need to come to a saving knowledge of Christ and to be in a healthy body of believers. And so I just encourage you, we've got a room literally filled with missionaries. Uh, as, As Isaac was saying, that was so convicting to my very heart that we have received the pearl of great price. And let's huddle to gaze at it together but then let's go spreading uh, those, those pearls before a lost world and may we see a fine return for our labor. Well, we're in the book of Ruth. We are entering the final chapter. We're already entering the final chapter. This week and next will be our final weeks in Ruth and then we'll begin Esther. We're hitting the two books of the Bible named after women, uh, wasn't really planned that way. It's just excitingly a, a coinkadink from our perspective, but it's providential from the Lord's perspective. And as you turn to Ruth chapter 4, Ruth and Naomi are both excited and also worried sick. Though Boaz is thrilled that Ruth returns his affections, there's a suspenseful obstacle to their hopes of marriage. What is that suspenseful obstacle? It's not what we would it's not what we would think. We would think that it's some unkindness, that it's some tragedy, that it's some accident, some evil person doing something evil against them. But no, the obstacle is God's kindness itself. This is fascinating. God's kindness. God has kindly issued a kinsman redeemer for Naomi's family, for Elimelech's family, for Ruth's family. I mean, can we imagine losing a spouse, but God has literally commanded their family, our deceased spouse, to care for us financially so we lose nothing. I mean, what a wonderful God issues this in his law. It's simply amazing, and yet it is that very kindness that prevents Boaz and Ruth from romance. It's getting in their way, this kindness from God. We finally discover romantic love, if we can call it that, between Boaz and Ruth, and it's the fourth and final chapter of the book. I mean, it's about time. We've waited the entire book to get here. The author's literary brilliance should never evade us. 
waiting until the very end of the book to spill the romance that has arrested us with patience as we await what we know is inevitable. We know that it's coming, and yet we're left on a cliffhanger every week. Brothers and sisters, allow me to invoke the lovers in Solomon's song who together plead with their readers that we do not arouse or awaken love until the God of love is pleased to awaken it for us. And you will know that the God of love is pleased when he presents an opportunity to love and lastingly please him in a romantic relationship. But how did Boaz react to the opportunity that God had afforded him? That's what tonight is all about. Three points, verses 1 to 4, Boaz excitedly storms the gate. Verses 5 to 8, Boaz cleverly wins the girl. And verses 9 to 12, Boaz passionately ensures the marriage. First point, looking at verses 1 to 4. Boaz excitedly storms the gate. Now, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. You remember that he had sent Ruth back home before anyone could recognize one another, before there was enough sunlight to even recognize people. They were all silhouettes. And so Boaz has eagerly been waiting hours until sunrise ends everyone's rest and brings the hustle and bustle of the day. You could picture him studying the horizon and running to the gate as soon as that glowing orb peeks over the hills to the east of Bethlehem. He is an excited man. Now, why does he run out to the gate? What about the gate is strategic? Well, if we look back with an ancient mind, every man would exit the gate to their fields or to the travel to travel to other cities during the day. Every man in the city is going to go through that gate. So what seems archaic to us would have been common sense, obvious to Boaz. And behold, look, right on time, the kinsman redeemer of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. It is providence. It's also Boaz planning well. Okay? They work together. Um, Don't try to test God's providence with your stupidity. It's way better to be wise and to enjoy the full benefits of God's providence as we exercise that wisdom and praise God. He's still sovereign and he's still ruling everything out in our lives, even when you and I are dumb. But Boaz has been wise. He's waiting in the right spot at the right time and God brings along just the man he's looking to see. Naomi has, if you remember, a closer relative than Boaz who is entitled by law to buy the property of Naomi's family. Okay? It's an Elimelech, Naomi's ex, ex-husband, deceased husband. He's died. It's in his name. So it's, it's, it's temporarily under her jurisdiction. And the kinsman redeemer, the closest relative, would be obligated by law to buy that land from Naomi and to help her, to support her with the proceeds that come from that land's produce. Now, rather than scam the system, Boaz is trusting God through it. Boaz has every earthly, humanly, fleshly reason to cut corners here. He has every reason in the world to, 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 to be sketchy, to be shady. And he, and he doesn't. 
He totally surrenders himself to God's law. He totally surrenders himself to God's word, to God's will. Taking shortcuts, brothers and sisters, taking shortcuts, whether in business or romance, will never, ever pay. It's so tempting to think that it will. But somehow, the Lord always manages to bless obedience and always manages to oppose sin. So let's make sure we're taking seriously God's word as it relates to all affairs of life. Boaz loves God, he trusts God, he obeys God, and so God sends this Redeemer at just the right time. Continuing in our text, verses 1 to 4, So Boaz said, Turn aside, my fellow, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Now the city gate in the little town of Bethlehem was the public square. It was the marketplace. It was the courthouse where anything significant requiring witnesses happened. This was the spot. If anything was worth watching, it was happening here at the city gate. Boaz is collecting the town leaders on their way. So each one that's going by, he's calling them out. Hey, come here, come here. He's getting the, ter- the first 10 elders of the city that he sees on their way to work. And as is their responsibility, they gather to do business. Now notice the kinsman redeemer of Naomi is left anonymous through this entire text. He's an important figure. He's a figure that's so important, his name should have been mentioned, and yet it's not. And we're going to discover increasingly why he was left nameless. But I want you to be thinking, why is his name not written? Why is he named my fellow? Why is he named kinsman redeemer? Literally in Hebrew, if we were reading it with a Hebrew mind, we would read it, Mr. So-and-so, hey, Mr. So-and-so, come sit down with me. That feels weird. Why would he say that? He knows his name. Everyone knows his name. Why don't we know his name? There's a very good reason for it. So Boaz is a man to whom men listen. Not one of them ignores Boaz. And yet, Boaz doesn't abuse the obvious authority he carries. Look with me at verse 3. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the fields of Moab, has to, has to, has to sell the portion of the field which belonged to our brother Elimelech. There's many reasons why she might be in this position, but the, the most obvious reason is that she is in dire straits financially. Okay? She has, she's in a position, she has to sell the property that belongs to her family in order to survive. That's the position in which she finds herself. She's so financially desperate, she must sell. And by law, as I said, the nearest kinsman, the nearest relative must buy it back. That's in Deuteronomy 25. He must buy it back. Elimelech is not likely, we're not sure. There's some people that think that that Elimelech and this kinsman redeemer and Boaz were actually brothers. Um, and that Boaz is the younger of the two surviving brothers. We're not sure. It's maybe more likely that they're cousins. Either way, they're very close family. Very close family. This is, this is really personal business. Boaz does not let his excitement eclipse, and this is going to be an important word tonight. 
I wasn't expecting this to be a big word tonight. It's a big word. It's a word that's puzzled me. It's a word that I imagine is going to lead to much conversation at your tables tonight. He's not allowed his excitement to eclipse his shrewdness. Now, if you were to hear the word shrewdness and honestly respond, whether you think the word is negative or positive, what would you say? How does the word sound? Good. Two of you think it's negative. Uh, uh, how many of you think that word sounds really positive? Okay, good. All right, good. Real responsive group tonight. Really excited about that. What does Boaz say is on the table? What does he put up as an order of business? The only thing up for discussion. Elimelech's property. What does Boaz want? Elimelech's daughter-in-law. Shrewdness. Okay? Watch this. He's shrewd. Wise, God-fearing, God-glorifying, Christ-loving people are shrewd. That should make you feel uncomfortable to hear until we understand what it means. Verse 4. So I thought to uncover this matter in your hearing, Boaz says, saying, acquire it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. He's putting him on the spot. He's putting him on blast. He's, he's not allowing him to pre- prepare or to think about this. Boaz is working an angle. He's dealing in total honesty. And yet he's positioning the situation for the best outcome. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if no one redeems it, tell me that I may know. I just need to know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I'm after you, okay? It's just business, all right? You're up first. We're going to have to deal with this, okay? We've got this land transaction. It's come to my attention that we have this property deal to settle. Let's get the business done before we go out the gate today, okay? That's the way he's positioning it. He's making sure he's not looking like he's desperate, that he doesn't have some personal uh, aspirations and dreams that are wrapped up in this. He doesn't want to show all his cards. That's shrewdness. You see? He doesn't sound desperately in love. He's being shrewd. Wisdom is shrewd. Do you know Jesus actually praises shrewdness with a really famous parable you could go read on your own? It's, it's honestly one of the most difficult parables to understand because the, the slave that, that's the primary character in the story is a real slouch. And through shrewdness in a desperate moment, wins the approval of his master and the praise of Jesus. The shrewd share what must be said and withhold what must not be said in order to accomplish a desirable outcome without lying and without sinning. You hear very carefully what I'm saying there. Don't lie. Don't sin. But I think many Christians, sadly, think that it is the apex of godliness and purity to tell everyone everything. You know what? They're called in scripture. Idiotes. 
I'll let you translate into English from the Greek there. They're idiots. They're fools. They're stupid. They're silly. Fools fall into one of two traps. They either become liars or they become leakers. They either deceive or they declare. Now, here's the thing. I want you to think about that. All of us are guilty of both offenses at times. Deception or declaration. There's times that we say too much. And there's, there's times that we intentionally deceive. We must not be either. Wise, God-fearing, Christ-glorifying shrewdness will avoid both. Deception is demonic. Colossians 3 says, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with its evil practices. That's old man. That's evil. Total transparency, on the other hand, is no less stupid than just blatant sin. And that's where we often have ignorance. Why were the Proverbs written? Why were the Proverbs written? What does Solomon say? Chapter 1, verse 4 of Proverbs. To give shrewdness to the stupid. We're stupid. We need to be shrewd. The Proverbs help us do that. You think about what the Proverbs say. How how much language in the Proverbs is given to, yeah, be careful you don't say that in this situation. Be careful you do say this in that situation. Be careful you gauge, you read the room. Be careful you know if the king's upset before you say some bad news. That's shrewd. And so many Christians think, no, 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 to honor Christ, I go and I say the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And so help me God, God deal with me what the results may be. That's an idiot who's going to go to heaven. That, that, that's basically the best thing that we could say about him. That's an idiot who's going to go to heaven. Praise God. There's grace for a soul like that. But they're no less dumb. And they're, they're going to suffer. They're going to suffer for their stupidity in this life. Now, who's the stupid, the the naive, the the gullible, the susceptible, the exploitable? Don't be exploitable. It's within your power to not be exploitable. We've got the book that teaches us how to avoid exploitation. Now, God gave us the entire book of wise sayings so we wouldn't be unsuspecting idiots fooled by clever tactics. Furthermore, God is glorified when we outdo the world in shrewdness for the sake of the gospel. That's something I was never taught, folks. We need to hear this. It glorifies God when his people outdo the world in shrewdness for the sake of the gospel and without sinning. Our most favorite characters in literature are the most shrewd. The detective Sherlock Holmes, come on, that's shrewd. The wizard Gandalf the Grey, shrewd. Masters of saying or not saying what shall bring success. We love people who are shrewd. We want people who are shrewd on our team. Boaz wants Ruth. 
So he says nothing but the truth necessary to achieve his intended goal. Therefore, he only discusses property, something any redeemer would desire. Basically, the land would provide for the needs of Naomi with its produce. That's easy money for any man. It's small payments to Naomi. It's a low-risk bargain. A land without heirs? Sounds good. Naomi's too old to get pregnant. Could I get any luckier? That's what this man's thinking in this moment. Verse 4. And he said, I'll redeem it. He's in. Done deal. The price is right. But we're sitting here thinking, that's not supposed to happen. That's not how this story's supposed to go. All the little girls, as you're sitting around reading Ruth in a little town of Bethlehem, many years from now, they're sitting there going, no, he's, he's not supposed to redeem it. This is not how the story's supposed to go. That can't possibly be. Does this shock Boaz? Probably not. Is this going to spoil his plans? We'll have to see. Suspense. God is glorifying himself in suspense. And he's captivated our hearts doing it. Listen to me, folks. The most difficult thing in the world, I find, is waiting on the Lord. He's glorified in suspense. Most of our lives are spent in suspense, waiting for something. And if there's nothing else earthly that we desire, we're always longing for the return of Christ and the reign with Christ and the new heavens and the new earth and new bodies. Our eternal existence is suspenseful. And God is glorified in suspense. Point two, Boaz cleverly wins the girl. The last two points are really short. Verses 5 to 8. Then Boaz says, On the day you acquire the field here, this is awesome. This is shrewd. On the day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth. Whoa, wait. Two women? Uh, You didn't mention that. Oh, and one of them is young enough to birth an heir? Oh, yikes. The, The kinsman redeemer's interest is beginning to wane. It's beginning to decline. Now, how does the shrewd Boaz nudge him more? What does he call Ruth? The Moabites. Oh, this is good. This is good. Boaz is smart. He's wise. Chapter 3 has already told us, the last chapter just told us, that she's no longer calling herself Ruth the Moabites. He's no longer calling her that. He's calling her that on purpose right now to make her less attractive to this kinsman redeemer. She's no longer the Moabites, but today she must be. Why? How did the men of Judah feel about Moabites? They're enemies. They're enemies from Lot's inbred son. They could not think more low of the Moabites. Boaz piles it on. You know, Ruth, the Moabites, the widow, the widow of the one who had died. Oh, golly. I mean, she's a dirty Gentile who's married and buried another man, and I'm going to have to take her as a wife? 
Oh, that's kind of a tall order. Now, how will all of this translate to the kinsman redeemer? What must he do for Naomi? He must marry a Moabitess and beget at least one boy as an heir for their family name, not his own. Verse 5, in order to raise up the name of the one who had died on behalf of his inheritance. So the kinsman redeemer's son would be the son of a dead man inheriting the dead man's land and name. This is called Leverite marriage. By the way, we should step aside from this completely and say, wow, how much God cares for women. He's issued laws that protect and provide for women. Boaz has successfully pushed his relative over the edge. So verse 6, the kinsman redeemer said, all right, I'm out. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, Boaz, for I cannot redeem it. Cannot redeem it? Afraid to redeem it? Risky to redeem it? Cannot redeem it? Hmm. No. You were pretty excited to buy the land when it was just land, amigo. And now that it's become a little bit more personal... You back out and you say you can't do it? Some think, like I said, that Boaz and this anonymous figure were the actual younger brothers of Elimelech, Boaz being the youngest. Either way, the kinsman redeemer is unwilling to sacrifice time, sacrifice money, sacrifice attention to do what God commanded him to do. This is not an option, this is an obligation. That he is willingly deflecting to Boaz. Why is he left anonymous? Why does he have no name? Because he's chosen to be rendered nameless in history. By this decision, he has blotted his name out of the history books. Oh, I wonder. Assuming the best about this man, that he's in glory... I wonder if he wouldn't give anything to go back and take Boaz's place and for his name to be written in this book and to become the ancestor of the King God-man. Deuteronomy 25 tells us Naomi and Ruth had a legal right to pull off his sandal and to spit in his face. It's the word of God saying, and I quote, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Just a humiliating. I I don't really get the sandal bit, but the spit in the face tells me that being, being spit in the face and having your shoes pulled off your feet by a woman is not something you want to have done after your morning breakfast. This is not a desirable reputation to have. It's crushing. Friends, be ever so careful what you say you cannot do. I just can't wait. Can't you? 
I can't bear it. You can't? That's how fools talk. The godly will wait on the Lord and say, yet not I, but Christ through me. Verses 7 and 8. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel according uh, concerning the right of redemption and the exchange of land to establish any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, acquire this for yourself. And he removed his sandal. There you go, Deuteronomy 25. The only thing that he's benefiting from is the fact that there's no women around to spit in his face and take off his sandal. He's got the option with 10 men to pull it off and to do it himself. And really, ultimately, think about this. Who's orchestrated this entire event? Boaz didn't say to Ruth, Ruth, go get Naomi, join me at the city gate. It's spitting time. He said, Ruth, go home, be with your mom. I'm going to take care of this. He's not only protecting them, Naomi and Ruth, he's, protect, he's protecting this family member from further shame. And, of course, he's getting what he wants. That's what love does. That's what love does. Boaz saves him from women spitting in his face, and yet the man nevertheless suffers a nameless, anonymous fate for a selfish life. Listen, if you're living for yourself, plan to be forgotten. That's the, that's the blatant moral here. And we're left marveling again at the shrewd generosity of Boaz, the man in love whose name survives literally millennia. Last point. Boaz passionately ensures the marriage, verses 9 to 12. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have acquired all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and all that belonged to Malon from the hand of Naomi. You remember, Kilian and Malon were Naomi's sons. We're going to see that Malon was the one Ruth was married to. And also I have acquired Ruth the Moabites, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the one who had died on behalf of his inheritance, so that the name of the one who had died will not be cut off from his brothers or from the gate of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. This, this, it moves me deeply to read what Boaz just said. That other man, whose name we do not know, the author probably refused to omit it because he's sparing his descendants' shame. That man was living for himself. Well, that's too much for me. I can't do it. Boaz stands up and boldly declares, I'm going to do it all. And I'm doing it for all these other people. Godliness craves witnesses. Godliness says, watch everything I do. As much light as possible ungodliness craves secrecy. Ungodliness doesn't want people watching what they're doing. I'll let that apply itself to your hearts. Boaz is not passing private parchments to Ruth in the dark. In fact, he avoids the dark situations. Let's get out of those dark situations. Let's live in the light. Let's live in the city gate. 
He's not living for himself. He lives for Elimelech, for Killian, for Malon, for Naomi, for Ruth, for Christ ultimately. Are you living for yourself or are you living for Christ? And before you answer that, what would your witnesses say? What would those who witness your life say? The witnesses that day saw a man devote his life to God's law. Devote his life to God's word, which which commanded him to love and serve other people. Now remember that Boaz becomes the ancestor of the God-man. Verses 11 and 12. And all the people who were in the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. By the way, that's what weddings do. That's what weddings do. They gather people to witness what we covenant to God, with God, to one another, before God. A wedding is not a party. A wedding is not a photo op for social media. A wedding is a witnessing of a covenant cut before God between one another. Weddings are gatherings to witness a work of God in and through us doesn't mean that they can't be celebrations. They ought to be celebrations. doesn't mean that there can't be a party attached to them. There ought to be a party attached to them. But here's the thing. Probably ladies more than gentlemen. As you're looking and you're, you know, filling up Pinterest tabs or boards or whatever, are you thinking about that? Or are you thinking about how it's going to look? We are witnesses. What are we going to witness on your wedding day? Christ in the church? Or a photo op that'll soon be forgotten? Verses 11 to 12. May Yahweh grant the woman who is coming into your home to be like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And so you shall achieve excellence in Ephrathah and shall proclaim your name in, that's right, that's where they are, Bethlehem. It is amazing, do you notice this? It's amazing how one man's conviction can sway crowds. I'm sure that when that kinsman redeemer said, I can't do it, everyone was like, yeah, yeah, that's actually a wise decision. And now Boaz stands up, says, I'm doing it at whatever cost, I'm doing it. And they're like, yeah, you're the best, Boaz. Your name's going to be famous in Bethlehem. When a man stands for his convictions, people follow. That is is what this church must be. We must be filled with men who know the word, who stand for the word, and who are uncompromising on the word, and women who follow. The women will follow, gentlemen. They'll follow us. And it'll be a shame if they outshine us. But it will be a glory if they're trying to catch up to us. Anyone will go out to watch a man burn, particularly a man burn with conviction. And that's what we see here in Boaz. Boaz says, I want Ruth. And the spectators roar and applause, wishing her. By the way, notice how her reputation is boosted by Boaz's love for her. His love for her makes her desirable to people who may have not thought her desirable before. He says, I want her. And they say, may she be like 
like the heroines of our nation. Rachel and Leah, may, may she be like the first mothers of our nation. Oh, by the way, Rachel was buried just outside Bethlehem Ephrathah after she died giving birth to Benjamin, the last of the tribes. Significant? Yeah. It's even more amazing how profound their wishes are to Boaz, that he will become greatest of all in Ephrathah of Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient days. Whoa, Boaz will be the greatest of all. Great, great, great grandfather of Jesus, King God-man, descended from obedient Boaz and repentant Moabitess, Ruth. Moreover, as the text concludes, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the seed which Yahweh will grant you by this young woman. And we close with a very interesting thought on just how willing God is to redeem sinners. We've, it's interesting how much this has come up lately in the pulpit and in various teaching situations. We were preaching through Nehemiah and it talked about the Perizzites who were mighty men of valor in the day of Nehemiah. And so we talked about Tamar and, and Judah. We were going through Genesis on Wednesday mornings. For those of you that are uh, free on Wednesday mornings from 9 to 10, we have a room of about 50 men that gather here, and we go through Genesis. Tomorrow we're going through uh, Genesis 40, I believe. Uh, Joseph being in prison is fantastic. But we just went through Judah and Tamar. Judah had three sons, each more wicked than the last. The first one married a girl named Tamar. He behaved wickedly. God killed him. So because of Leverite marriage, the second son has to take Tamar and raise up a son through Tamar. That man was wicked, mistreated Tamar. God killed him. You're down to the last son. Judah is blaming Tamar. He hides his son from Tamar, promises her that he will give her, him to him when, when he's of age, and yet doesn't. So Tamar tricks Judah, her father-in-law, to sleep with her. And they have twins, an heir and a spare, (laughs) in the womb at the same time. Perez is the oldest. And it is through Perez. First of all, it's through Judah, not Joseph, that Jesus comes. And it's through Perez, this son of a sinful situation, that Jesus chooses to come. This son of a Leverite marriage with an unhappy woman and her father-in-law. And listen to these people in Bethlehem say, this Leverite marriage, may God bring as big a blessing through this as he has through Judah and Tamar. And that blessing is one and the same. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the star coming out of Bethlehem, Jesus, 
our great King and Savior. And so Ruth, like Tamar, like Rahab, like many others who did not come to Christ in proud stock, are put right in the genealogy of God become flesh. You cannot possibly tell me, young man, young woman, that you have committed any sin, are committing any sins, from which God is not excited to save you, excited to forgive you, excited to redeem and heal you, and to make you as wonderfully joyful as you have been miserable in that sin. So turn from that sin tonight and turn to the wide arms of a gracious Christ and have fellowship with him around the tables. Father, we ask that you do this for Christ's sake. We pray it. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.